Thank you for listening to sermons from South City Church. Our mission as a church is to demonstrate God's greatness by advancing a gospel that transforms people into fully devoted followers of Jesus. For more information on South City Church, please visit us at southcitymke.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash southcitymke. For anything where the uh, stakes are high or where an activity or task is strenuous, we make an effort to prepare ourselves. When we have a job interview, we prepare. We don't want to go in there and blow our chance to get that job. When I was playing soccer in college, during the off-season, I would, I would run and I would train. It's a competitive arena, and you want to be at the top of your game. You want to be prepared. And for a lot of, of us lately here in the church, when we're getting ready to have a baby... You make preparations. You, you prepare a place in your home. You make a registry, maybe. You, you want to have all the tools, all the gifts and gadgets that you need to welcome this crying, pooping, nonstop eating, helpless baby into the world. We make efforts to prepare ourselves. When it comes to things that matter, we don't want to go in and just wing it. When we're not prepared, we're, we're not expectant, we're taken by surprise, we're not ready for the task at hand. And in a similar way, throughout this book, 1 Peter, Peter wants us to be prepared to suffer. As we've seen throughout the book, Peter understands that, that the faithful Christian life is one that involves suffering, specifically suffering for being a Christian, suffering because we follow Christ. And he wants us to be prepared for that. He wants us that when that suffering comes, as the suffering comes, to be expectant and ready for the task at hand, to be ready to suffer well. And so in today's text, 1 Peter 4, 12-19, This is our last main paragraph on suffering in the book, a predominant theme. Peter, in this text, he wants to address our outlook and our perspective on suffering, to prepare our orientation towards suffering and the Christian life. So that when it comes, we're not only expectant, but we're also ready for it. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because a spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls 
to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter begins in verse 12 here by telling us that we should expect suffering, that it's not something that should take us by surprise. Look at verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, as though suffering was something bizarre within the Christian life, an an aberration of sorts. No, as, as we've said, it's quite clear that Peter understands suffering to be this natural outcome of a normal, healthy Christian life. As he says in chapter 5, verse 9, look over just one chapter, chapter 5, verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That this is a normal thing that's seen by the fact that, that suffering is this universal experience experienced among Christians throughout the world. I think it's become quite common for us, at least in America, to view suffering as something of an exception within the Christian life, rather than the norm. And maybe in part due to the experience that Christianity has had in America, where Christianity, or maybe better, uh, this sort of general Christian flavor, has held a, a sway of dominance within the culture, a popular majority. And so Christianity, generally speaking, it hasn't, it hasn't been marginalized or on the outskirts. And so any sort of suffering that would seem to accompany that is, is sort of, that sort of ostracization, it, it seems foreign to us. Or maybe it's in part due to our, the prevalence of our prosperity gospel, or even the, uh, when that prosperity is toned down a bit for our evangelical sensitivities, a prosperity light, if you will. Where Christianity is little more than this therapeutic spirituality that boosts my quality of life, that helps me live life just a little bit smoother. If Christianity involves suffering... That sort of is the total opposite. That defeats the point. We don't have categories for that. And so we fall prey to what Peter is addressing here. Let's be honest about where we're tempted. It's easy to trust God's goodness and his care when things are going well. The difficulty comes, of course, when things all of a sudden become hard. That's when our trust in God is really put to the test. We start to question things like, how can a loving and good God let this happen? How can this situation be within his good purposes? And these aren't just cliche sort of questions we ask. These are actually the legitimate, deeply felt wrestlings we have in those moments. Okay, because we look around at our circumstances, they don't seem to reflect what we think we know is true about God. We feel overwhelmed. The suffering takes us by surprise. Our confidence in God begins to falter. We think something is wrong here. And the reason we think that is because our paradigm for the Christian life doesn't include the space for, su- for suffering. Peter tells us, though, to expect suffering. Don't be surprised as if it was something strange, that this is normal. 
Isn't it profoundly stabilizing to know that our suffering is something that's expected? It's normal. It's, it's not then the product of meaningless chaos. Or we can look at the uh, scene of the culture war. That as our culture increasingly moves away from this sort of outwardly religious Christian bent, certain Christians seem like they don't even know what to do with themselves. We have this feeling that America is supposed to be a Christian nation. And so as these changes occur, we feel like this, this thing that's owed to us is, is somehow being ripped away, that a certain right is being violated, and it's being ripped away from us. And so we lash out. We want to make America 1950s Christianity again. We, we lose our minds thinking that if, if Christianity becomes culturally marginalized, that somehow something is wrong. That, that there might even be something of a defect within Christianity. No, Peter says. He says, this is normal Christianity. This is Christianity in its natural habitat, we might say. This is Christians, as Peter says, as, as exiles and as foreigners. And so Peter says, don't, don't be surprised. Rather, we should expect this. This is normal. Why? Because suffering is what it means to be united to a suffering Christ. Sufferings are a product of of our union with Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, Do not be surprised, but what in verse 13? Do not be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That we suffer as Christians because we're united to a Christ who suffers. That our suffering is a sharing with him in his suffering. Christian Suffering, in other words, identifies us with Christ. It evidences that we have union with Christ. And notice this. This is not only incredibly interesting, but incredibly important. Notice this. That Peter describes these sufferings not as the believers, but as Christ's. Okay, we, we would expect Peter to say something like this, to describe the believers something as being their own, like they're your sufferings. You experience them. They're your sufferings. But, but what does Peter actually say? He describes them not as the believers' sufferings, but as Christ's. They're actually Christ's. And the believer only partakes in them inasmuch as he is sharing in what is properly Christ's. Joseph Tsun is a Baptist pastor who ministered during the communist rule in Romania. And during that time, even, at the, even in the face of the threat of, of harm and the threat of his own life being taken away, he continued to preach the gospel. And later, he would take those experiences and he would write a dissertation on a theology of martyrdom, of dying for Christ. And in summarizing that work, this is what he says. This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. 
It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honor to share his sufferings. Get this. That, that it's not just that our sufferings resemble Christ's or that we suffer because we follow him, although that is certainly true, but, but that in some mysterious way, by nature of our union with Christ, the sufferings that we experience as Christians are Christ's sufferings. They are his. We, sim- we simply have the privilege of, of bearing them in our own bodies. We get to embody them. We get to be the vessels that receive his afflictions. As Paul says, the church, what? The church is Christ's body. He is the head. So the sufferings that we experience in our bodies are an extension of his. What is done to us is done to him. And so Christ, when he interrupted Paul on the road to Damascus, what did he say to Paul? This was before Paul had become a Christian and he had been going around and he had been persecuting the church, okay? He had been persecuting Christians. But what did Christ say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Okay, this is absolutely outlook-shaping. This, is, this should absolutely change the way we view Christian suffering. That to suffer for Christ, to suffer, to suffer as a Christian, is to partake in the privilege of being able to bear Christ's sufferings in our own body. We are like Simon of Cyrene, the, the man who was pulled from the crowd to, to carry Christ's cross on the way to Golgotha. That, that we have the privilege of being able to bear Christ's cross. And as we said, all of this is due to our union with Christ. That we share in Christ's sufferings because we're united to him. In chapter 2, verse 21, just flip over to chapter 2, verse 21. Peter describes Christ as our example. As our example. Look at 2.21. Peter says, for to, you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. This word that's translated example here is, is quite interesting. It's a word that's actually used to describe the stencils uh, of the alphabet that children would use as they learn to write. That they, they, they would use these stencils to write and trace their letters. And that is the sort of imagery that describes our relationship to Christ, that our, our union with him. Okay, that by faith we partake in Christ and we find the salvation that is in him. Our life is then stenciled after his. We become conformed into his image. We're made like Christ. But then as we partake in Christ and we're conformed into his likeness, we also partake in Christ's sufferings and we're conformed to his cross. As Christ himself said in Mark 8, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And this is reason to rejoice, Peter says, because our, our natural response in the face of suffering is to become bitter and withdrawn. But, but Peter wants to reorient our view. We rejoice in sufferings because our suffering indicates 
that were partakers with Christ. And we furthermore rejoice because if we're partakers with Christ in his sufferings, this means that we will also share with him in his glory. So look at verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That is, when Christ returns and he's, and he's seen in all of his triumph and glory, that if we have union, get this, when we've, if we have union with Christ now in his sufferings, that same union with Christ means that we're going to share with him in his resurrection. We're going to share with him and in his glory. We will be glorified with him. And so Peter says this is reason to rejoice. This promise of future joy fuels our present joy. It energizes our resolve to suffer because of the hope that we have. Our present joy is to be the prelude of this joyful chorus that's going to climax at Christ's return. And so we rejoice now in some measure as a way of preparing ourselves to participate in that final joy. Secular hedonism would tell us to pursue pleasure and avoid suffering at all costs. In contrast, Peter and Christian hedonism says that the life of most joy is a life found in participation with Christ, even Christ's sufferings. As we continue now to verse 14, we see that not only does Christian suffering identify us with Christ, but it also identifies us with his spirit. And his spirit is a foretaste of this future glory. Notice how the spirit is called the spirit of glory. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That when we're insulted for the sake of Christ, it shows that we are his. It evidences that we're one of those on whom his spirit rests. So when we share in Christ's sufferings, it shows that we also are one who, who shares in his spirit. In other words, to be insulted for the sake of Christ is actually not to be insulted, but to receive a blessing. Because it shows that we are, we are one of Christ's faithful, obedient followers. That this is to be expected, as, as Christ himself said in John 15, that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And all too often, it's in, our moments, it's in our moments of suffering that we actually feel that God is most absent. We, we can interpret our suffering as, as like a sign of God's displeasure, that we, we ask, where is God in this situation? That has he, has he maybe even abandoned me? Situations of suffering seem to contradict our expectations about what we think we know about God, about his goodness, his graciousness, and his care. The situation itself, it would seem to deny all of those things. It, it seems utterly void of God's presence. But Peter says that it's precisely in those moments of suffering that God is present. That God's Spirit rests on those who suffer in Christ. God is near in our suffering. 
Furthermore, as we move to verses 15 and 16, it's, it's in these moments of suffering that we have this unique opportunity to glorify God. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay, don't, don't suffer because you did something that deserves it, Peter says. I mean, how often do we do that? Where, where maybe we're not suffering for doing criminal things, like Peter mentions, but we're rude, or we're obnoxious, we're unnecessarily offensive. Or maybe we have this sort of Christian culture that we're all, we all know of, that Christian culture that's just sort of unnecessarily bizarre and weird. And we're just kind of goofy. We sort of bring grief on ourselves, and then we dress it up as something virtuous and say we're suffering for Christ. Peter doesn't have any, he doesn't have any time for that. He says if we're going to suffer, let's suffer for good reason. Let's suffer because of Christ. And when we do so, he says, we have this unique opportunity to glorify God. Verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed that this, this temptation that we can feel as, Christian, as, as, as Christianity becomes more marginalized in our culture, we can, and when we're, when we're insulted for our faith, there's a, a temptation to recoil in embarrassment. So don't be ashamed, but rather what? Let him glorify God in that name. Let him glorify God, get this, in that name. Name that is, that, is, that is as we are Christians, as we have the privilege of bearing the name Christian. And we glorify God as we represent Christ in so doing. The idea is that as we suffer, we want to do so in such a way that represents Christ well. And, there, and there's a lesson for us here then, that, that as we interact with non-Christians, we want to always be conscious of how we're representing Christ to them. Even, even those who may be the ones bringing us the harm. And specifically for suffering, that when hardships occur, we want to ask what sort of testimony our response to the suffering brings. Does does our response to suffering catch the attention of non-Christians? That, 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 that we as Christians, we suffer differently than they do. That we have, a, we have a certain hope that's hard for them to explain, as chapter 3, verse 15 says. That we have a, we have a certain perseverance in suffering and not retaliating, as chapter 3 says. Continuing on to verses 17 through 18, Peter brings up this theme of God's judgment. We see that in verse 17, that God's end-time judgment, the, the judgment that is at the end, is already, in some sense, begun. And it, it started with believers. Verse 17 says that it is time, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We have to say at the outset that the judgment Peter is referring to here is not a judgment of punishment or condemnation. Okay, we know that for the believer, Christ has already taken our punishment for sin, and we can no longer be condemned before God. Okay, praise God, we cannot be punished for sins that Christ has already paid for. The judgment, rather, that Peter has in, has in view here is that which is found in verse 12. So look, at, look at, back up at verse 12. 
Verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you. The word fiery here, okay, this fiery trial, it's a word that's used to describe the process of refining metals, like, like putting gold to the fire and burning away its impurities. In other words, the, the, the trials that we experience as Christians are something of a refining for us. That, the, and this is why Scripture then says that we can rejoice in our trials. We count our trials as all joy because they mold and they shape in us. It's, and it's no doubt a painful process. It's a trial by fire, if you will. But in the process that we're refined and it burns away our impurities. But Peter also says it's a testing. That those who undergo this sort of refining this, and, and, and they persevere through it, they're shown to be genuine believers. The trial serves as a test of our genuineness. And this is seen if we flip back over to chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, where Peter's going to refer to the same thing, same thing here, with the same sort of language, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That our faith is is one that is tested and is refined, like a brick of gold that's put to the flame. And and through the process, our genuineness as believers is made evident. This seems to be the sort of judgment that Peter has in view here. And, and, And it's a sort of refining and a purging. It's identifying those who are genuine. And this is made more clear when we see that this is already anticipated within the Old Testament itself, that there's a background of Old Testament judgment to this very idea with this same sort of language. And we'll just look at one example. Turn to Zechariah 13, the second to last book of the Old Testament. The second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah 13. right before Malachi. So Zechariah 13, verses 8 through 9. Just one example here. In Zechariah 13, God is coming to judge his disobedient people, and he's he's announcing this judgment to them. Let's see what he says in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one-third shall be left alive. Okay, God is going to judge, and his judgment is going to weed people out. Two-thirds are going to be cut off, and one-third will be left. And notice how he describes this then in verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. Okay, that, that the same categories, the same language here. And after refining them, what's going to be the result in the continuing in verse 9? They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. That this is the sort of judgment that, that Peter seems to have in view here. This one of purging and refining his people. And interestingly enough, 
that in 1 Peter, God is executing this judgment, this sort of refining, even through the mistreatment that we face from those who persecute us. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 7 through 18. 1 Peter. Peter's point here is that if this is the sort of judgment that believers undergo, that this sort of purging and refining through fiery trials, my goodness, just imagine the sort of judgment that then awaits the non-believer. Verse 17 through 18. For, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be, be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That if, if believers are scarcely saved, that is, not that God somehow nearly fails to save us and, and that we just kind of like barely make it, but, but rather that the idea is that we're saved through much difficulty. This, this difficulty, difficulty that he's mentioned here of being refined and purged through suffering. That our salvation involves this judgment of going through trials. That if this is the sort of judgment that, that believers undergo, then just imagine the sort of judgment that awaits those who do not submit to the gospel. The judgment that awaits them is, is much severe. They will be damned. The reason that Peter brings all of this up is to give us motivation to persevere in our suffering. Okay, the life of following Christ, according to 1 Peter, it, it's not an easy life. It's not the road of least resistance. But here, Peter says that we should never be envious of any other life. We should never be envious of the sort of apparent ease or temporary benefits that would seem to come with, with not following Christ or compromising our faith. Okay, when Christians are marginalized in a society, that easily becomes the temptation. Following Christ is hard. And the people who oppress us, they seem to have it easy. So Peter reminds us what's at stake. It is worth following Christ and persevering in suffering, because if these purifying trials are the judgment that we face, then heaven forbid we would ever experience the outcome that awaits those who do not submit to the gospel. Suffering in Christ is better than suffering condemnation outside of him. Finally, in verse 19, Peter says that, that, our, that in our suffering we are to entrust ourselves to God. We are to entrust ourselves to God. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to to a faithful creator while doing good. We trust God in suffering. But why, why does Peter describe God as, as a faithful creator? Why creator? Why not something like Savior or, or Father? I think the reason is this. That the one who is the creator of the world is also the one who is the ruler of the world. In other words, the same God who holds the power to bring the world into existence possesses and exerts the power of directing all of its affairs. Nothing is outside the domain of his rule. 
Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is outside of his power because, because nothing exists except that which he himself has created and which he, by his power, per- permits to continue existing. He made the world. He, he owns the world. The world only continues to exist by the very fact that he allows it to. Everything that happens is directed by God. This means that our suffering is not an accident. It's it's, it's not the random product of chance. We're not the unlucky recipients of chaotic misfortune. Our suffering happens on the leash of God's will. Verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will... Get that, that our suffering is according to God's will. It's not hopeless or despairing because God stands behind it. And even the idea of our suffering as a trial in verse 12, that this implies, the idea of a trial, that implies meaning and purpose and intentionality to our suffering, that, that God is at the helm. And the God that's at the helm, is he's not a vicious a malevolent God, he is, as Peter says, faithful. He can be trusted, in other words, that he's, he's faithful to his promises and he's never going to abandon his people. And so we're called to trust God that when suffering comes and it overwhelms us and it, it seems to eclipse everything that we think we know about God, Peter wants to gaze, direct our gaze to God and a God who is greater than our suffering. So we entrust ourselves to God and We entrust ourselves in our suffering over to him. He is in control, and he is faithful. And the way that we trust God, Peter says, is that we we continue to do good even as we suffer. And so now as we move to the Lord's Supper, we want to bring into focus the gospel reality that stands behind all of these truths. As Peter himself said in verse 13, that we rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's suffering, that our suffering for Christ is an indication of our union with Him. And this suffering with Christ is what we celebrate in the Supper, that we are sharers with Him. We're sharers in Him, that we, we partake in the salvation that is found in Christ alone by faith alone. The bread and the wine here signifying His body and blood as it, as it was given in our place for us and for our sin. That apart from the work of Christ, our sin separates us from a holy God and it leaves us subject to his judgment. But Christ bears that sin in his death on the cross for all who trust in him. And so as we partake of the bread and the wine, we're testifying to the fact that salvation is not found in us or anything we do because we need the work of another We need the work of Christ. And so hence, in the the supper, we partake of something that is outside of us. We partake of his body and his blood as it is depicted in the bread and the wine. And then as we consume the elements, we're expressing our faith that, that the fact that this salvation is found in Christ, that it's solely by partaking in what is found in Christ, his body, his blood, the salvation that he has accomplished. 
And so we're, we're saved by sharing in Christ. We're united to Him through faith. We're caught up and we're bundled up in the salvation that is found in Him. And this is our anthem every Sunday, that the gospel is our hope.